everyone, and welcome to issue 13 of Hey, That's Comics. I'm your host, Gary Webb. Now, last week, we had another big week as my as you guys continue to punt, come in by the droves, particularly over in Bangkok, which kind of blows me away. So again, I want to say thank you for making me a part of your week. I'm, I'll do my best to continue to, you know, make it worth your while. To that end, let's hop into what we've got on tap this week. In Slate Soapbox, we got some TV to talk about with the announcement of Superman and Lois, as well as a Green Lantern TV show being in the works from DC. And then they also came out with the fact that we are, in fact, getting an Ant-Man 3 from the MCU. Then, in the weekly poll, we're going to talk about Tales from the Dark Multiverse, The Death of Superman, Bloodshot number 2, Venom 19, and Excalibur number 1. And then finally, we're going to talk about both Identity as well as Infinite Crisis in the Comic Club. There's a lot here that I have some thoughts on, but remember to let me know what you think about any of it with by reaching out to me at Hey That's Comics on Instagram or Twitter. You can also email me at HeyThat'sComics at Outlook.com, or you can also hop onto that link that I have there in the show notes and send me an audio message that I can play on air, incorporating it right here into the show. Thanks for coming to get down and nerdy with me. And with that, let's kick things off with Slade Soapbox. Slade Soapbox. We got a lot of big news about DC's Slater shows going forward this week. We had already known that while Stephen Amell and Arrow, as we know it, is coming to an end, but would continue to live on in what I assume will be the future, it's kind of up in the air at the moment, with Green Arrow and the Canaries, which will follow Oliver's daughter taking up the mail. Over the last week, however, we got news on even more shows. First, we learned that while we will be getting a second season of Doom Patrol, it'll be available both on DC Universe as well as the upcoming HBO Max. This is great news, as a second outing was unsure, but as I love season one, I'm extremely excited at the prospect of the continuing adventures by this very definition of a ragtag group of heroes. However, even that isn't what I consider to be the biggest news out of DC television this week, as we got the announcements of two new series that kind of came out of nowhere. The Arrowverse will continue to grow as they'll follow up this year's Batwoman with Tyler Hoechlin and Elizabeth Tulock reprising their roles in Superman and Lois. Yes, that means we'll have two concurrent shows focused on the House of L, but I think this could work. We haven't had much time with Tulock, but Hoechlin has been praised since he stepped into the role in Season 2 of Supergirl. Now, upon first hearing this, my mind immediately went to Lois and Clark, the 90s TV show, which, again, surprisingly, I love, but it's really, it's not a fair comparison as they're sure to be wildly different shows. Lois and Clark's main hook was the whole will-they-won't-they with their relationship, while Superman and Lois has already passed that chase. Instead, we'll get to see them as they struggle as a couple, as they navigate their careers and his heroics while learning to be parents at the same time. Now, granted, I'm under the assumption that we'll be starting with the child as a baby, but if you've read the Superman stuff from early in Rebirth or any of the Super Sun stuff, you know there's a lot of story potential to be mined from this. It'll be interesting to see how they manage to make Supergirl stand out with her cousin, now a fixture on the scene. The other big news was that DC mastermind Greg Berlanti is launching a Green Lantern series for the upcoming platform. I have to admit, I'm a little disappointed that it won't be on DC's actual service, but as witnessed these past few weeks, I'd love me some Green Lantern. That's a claim I know I make about a lot of things in the world of comics, but that's no less true because of it. We have next to nothing to go on here. No clues to who's the focus, but they have a lot of options open to them. Now here I'm going to step away into purely speculation territory, so take all this with a grain of salt. 
Given all the intermingling of universes we've seen in this build to Crisis, might this show be tied to the Arrowverse? Berlanti is one of the big three behind its success, and there's long been a question there of if John Diggle was in fact John Stewart. I believe Stuart turned out to be his mother's maiden name, as but, you know, it's a little bit foggy. But then things really ramped up a notch in last year's Elseworlds when the 90s TV flash, John Wesley's ship, asked him where his ring was. Clearly on that earth, he is Green Lantern. David Ramsey has gone on record saying that the whole thing will be cleared up in this final season of Arrow, but what if it's not the end, but rather it's a launching pad for a solo show? DC has clearly gotten less concerned with getting their chocolate into their peanut butter, so I can totally see a Lantern show more or less off on its, in its own little world on HBO, or rather its own little galaxy, with, you know, just some occasional crossing over into the Arrowverse. I just think it'd be a nice carryover, but even if that's just a pipe dream, I'm still eagerly anticipating this show. And then finally, rounding out this week's soapbox, we got an MCU announcement this week that we can expect Ant-Man to get a third outing. Now, I know it stands to reason that he, like everyone else, would get a trilogy, but it was in doubt there for a little while. While Paul Rudd has been phenomenal in the role, his solo efforts tended towards the lower end of the money train, which caused some people to doubt. While that's true about the financial return, I've never really doubted it, as the movies have always been used as kind of a pressure release valve for the MCU, as they purposely go off on a wild caper to act as something of a palate cleanser. Even had I not been convinced before this, though, the effects of the snap, particularly when it comes to his daughter Hope, made a continuation inevitable. While I have no idea what path they're going to take with the movie, one thing I'm positive on is that Hope is going to come in her own here. Given her five-year jump, she's primed to assume her stature identity, which I think I mentioned before. And alongside the forthcoming Kamala Khan, and we're well on our way to the Young Avengers, which is something that Feige has admitted to wanting to build to. They love to see future developments, and this movie is the perfect vehicle to begin the build with. As usual, this is all in the future, so let's go ahead and turn to something a little more immediate with what I read this week in the Weekly Poll. The Weekly Poll. We took our second trip into the realms below with this week's Tales from the Dark Multiverse Death of Superman from Jeff Loveness and Brad Walker. Tempest Fugonaut is again scouring the dark place looking for hope, but this isn't the place where he finds it as we start with the end, witnessing the final moments of Superman's epic battle with Doomsday. Where we begin to diverge is found in Lois's inner monologue where, overwhelmed by grief, she's raging at the rest of the world. Shut out from ever even being at the funeral, we watch her spiral downward, giving up on the world while attempting to go through the motions, but she just doesn't care. Lost, she wanders to his fortress, compelled by what she just doesn't know. The Eradicator, a Kryptonian sentient artifact, emerges from his energy matrix, lamenting that he was too late. In the core storyline, it had placed Clark's body inside, which eventually led to his return, but here, apparently, the Eradicator was too slow. As he begins to destabilize, which would mean the true ending of Kryptonian heritage, Lois makes a desperate gamble, allowing him to change her on a genetic level, the process of which could kill her. But, you know, that would make for a very short story, so she of course survives and sets out not to continue his fight, but rather to end it. She's a law unto herself, stopping not just bank robberies, but predatory banks, ending wars, taking out corrupt officials. She doesn't understand why Clark thought so small. 
She's thinking big, and damn the consequences, she crashes into Lex Luthor's sanctuary and drags him into orbit, incinerating him as they break atmosphere. With one who should have died long ago down, she moves on to the Joker, consuming him in a raging inferno of heat vision as Batman tries to intervene. One thing that Bruce has always had in his favor when he's gone up against Clark in the past is that at his core, Clark's a good person. This Lois isn't, as she claims yet another victim. Later on, she, along with Steel and Superboy, end up battling the cyborg Superman, with the other two dying in the process. Enraged even more than normal, Lois launches herself at him as the two tear up the surrounding city, costing countless lives in the process. It's at this desperate moment that a calming voice tells the people that things will be okay as Kal-El, alive after all, steps out onto the field. The reunion goes sour quickly as Clark realizes just how fearful of Lois the people are, but before they can explore that any deeper, Cyborg prepares to blast Superman with pure kryptonite energy. Terrified of again losing him, Lois rockets directly into the machine, but the resulting explosion spreads the kryptonite, killing Clark in the process. From here, she continues her downward descent and goes on to become the Eradicator, an angel of vengeance in the dark, as Tempest again, finding not even a glimmer of hope, moves on to his study of another world. We pick up with the second issue of Valiant's Bloodshot by Tim Seeley and Brett Booth, shortly after the battle that we saw coming at the end of issue one. Things didn't exactly go in General Grail's favor, as Shop managed to not only handle the ground troops and bring down the attack chopper, but he did it all without hurting any bystanders. It wasn't without cost. You don't throw even his nanomachine body into the whirling blades of a chopper to bring it down and walk away from it unscathed. They managed to track him to the north, and Grail is more determined than ever to bring him down. Here we catch up with our star, who's in bad shape, his form looking as though it had been melted. He terrifies the locals as he tries to pull himself back together when the troops fly in, leading with Magpul's weapons to further destabilize him. But he's apparently developed some form of immunity and is not nearly as susceptible to them anymore, as he begins to roll right through them. He gets cut short, however, when Grail arrives, decked out in some custom armor, and lays into Bloodshot. We get some back and forth, and while we never actually get the true name for the organization, we find that they're a shadowy army that serves no nation, but rather humanity as a whole. They battle back and forth, with Shot eventually coming out on top, when Grail stalls for time by appealing to his humanity when, out of nowhere, Bloodshot's body starts to slough apart as we learn that all of this was a distraction for Grail's right hand, Eidolon, to find the trigger to break his physical cohesion as we close with him melting in her grip. It's definitely a cliffhanger, but it'd be sure be a shame if this run ended on the third issue, so I can't wait to see where we go to next. We're getting ever closer to the absolute carnage finale as we check in with Venom 19 from Donny Cates and Iban Coelho. We get a bit of a recap as Eddie relives their setbacks during this run as we join up with Dylan and Normie again on the run as Cap, Spidey, Thing, and Logan battle on against the Maker who's currently wearing a hybrid suit made of all of the Life Foundation symbiotes. It's not going well, particularly the failed fastball special from the thing using Spidey. There are definitely no Wolverine and Colossus. But Dylan reaches his goal, freeing the friendly symbiote sleeper, but their attempt to merge backfires. Something about Dylan won't allow them to join. The Maker is in control when Hawkeye makes his entrance, but even with his trick arrows, it only buys a moment, and as Reed moves to go back on the offensive, Dylan with Sleeper as a badass symbiote direwolf lunges for Richards, covering him in napalm, which Clint ignites, apparently destroying the symbiotes as Maker makes his escape. 
as they're finally removing the codex from Normie, Dylan and Sleeper are trying to work their way through what just happened. Dylan had taken control of Sleeper, dominating it, which is something unheard of, particularly if there's no bot in play. They end up making peace with each other as Eddie finally rejoins his unknowing son, but the heartfelt reunion is soured a bit as Sleeper questions when he's going to tell Eddie truth about what he really is, which is an ominous note to end on. I tried my best to keep up with the whole event, but I've had to miss some here and there, so while I don't think we've actually nailed down the truth about Dylan yet, this event has been awesome thus far, and, I'm, and my anticipation is building as we near the finish line. And in this week's X-Watch... It's time for the sword to flash once again as we got into the relaunch of Excalibur this week from Teeny Howard and Marcus Toe. We start out in Otherworld, wherein lies Camelot and all of its tropes in the Marvel Universe. The acting ruler, Morgan Le Fay, who has a long history of battling against Earth's champions, finds herself worried as Krakoa has apparently made a portal that comes out right into her scrying well. We shift to England at the Braddock Academy, where we see Betsy preparing to join the others on Krakoa. On the island, we get to see Ensabonur, also known as Apocalypse, has taken off his armor and taken up almost priestly robes, investigating the strange gateway that nobody can pass through. It's baffling most of them, but Apocalypse recognizes its energies as leading to the other world, and they merely need a champion with the right power to break through the barrier. Like a member of the Captain Britain Corps, for example. Brian should have just tagged along with his sister when she came. A transition to what I believe is a new group of human magic users, the Coven Solar Blackwood, finds their power stripped as Morgan has closed off the path of magic until this blight upon her well is destroyed, root and branch. Back at Club M, Betsy is still struggling to feel at ease when the artist formerly known as Gold Balls, now going by the much more impressive Egg, comes to bring her to the hatchery where mutants are reborn where she comes face to face with her brother Jamie. Now, Jamie, he has a long history, primarily working on the other side, and he's just as overbearing having been reborn as he was in his past life. It's at this point Apocalypse interrupts and gets Betsy to go retrieve Brian so that they can make headway into the gateway towards the other world. Brian is, of course, hesitant to follow any directions from Apocalypse, so the two set out on their own to dig into things. They're met as soon as they arrive by Morgan and the Coven, who want Brian to defend the realm, even if it means destroying the witch breeds, as they term mutants, while they seize Betsy. On Krakoa, Apocalypse calls on a group of X-Men to try to force their way through the barrier, while Betsy struggles against her controlled brother Brian. They manage to disrupt the gate, destroying it, but in the process, Rogue gets caught in the backlash and placed into a very Sleeping Beauty-like slumber. Cut off from home, Psylocke is in a bad spot when Brian struggles through enough to force his medallion, which is the focus of the Captain Britain power onto her, allowing her to escape. She returns to find the enchanted rogue, but she's not what she once was as she now gained the power and is the new Captain Britain. We close on a member of the Coven, having sacrificed the others, and joined up with the Coven Akaba. That's a name most of you may not be familiar with, but Akaba was the birthplace of Apocalypse, and that name has since popped up throughout Marvel history, usually in relation to him, so I'm expecting some big stuff to come out of this. But alright, that basically catches you up on what I read this week, so let's jump right into our tale of two crises in the comic club. The Comic Club. 
This week, we're doing things a bit differently with our two focuses not really being related to each other. Despite taking place around the same time, there's not a whole lot of overlap between the two, except I kind of consider both of them to be necessary elements for next week's topic of 52. If I'm going to be completely honest, I mean, 52 is the actual goal, and this week's purpose is just for us to get there, but I think there's some good stuff here, too. We're starting with Identity Crisis from Bad Meltzer and Rags Morales, and here they give us a murder mystery that rocks the Justice League to its very foundations. We open up on 30 minutes to now as our main character, Ralph Dibney, the elongated man, staking out a shady deal alongside Lorraine Riley, Firehawk. Right out of the gate, we get some awesome character moments with Ralph outing Green Arrow's bald spot as we check in on other heroes and their family, which plays a central role in the story from Nightwing reconnecting with Coriander at his parents' grave to the Man of Steel bending when Ma unwittingly stops him with a comment that, you know, Batman probably wouldn't do this to his parents. Talk about an inadvertent knockout. We see that in the now. The Justice League communicators are alerting them that something horrible has happened as we jump back to Ralph and Hawk, now 17 minutes ago, where we get a deep insight into just how much history and true love make up the Dibney's life. Every year, Sue cooks up a mystery for his birthday, which is why she rushed him out of the house to go on patrol tonight. This leads us to the Calculator, a former D-list villain who had a stroke of genius and has set himself up as kind of the counter to Barbara Gordon's Oracle, giving villains the tactical layout of any given situation for a price. As things come to a head in the alley, we cut to Sue, who has an extra special surprise that the great detective himself won't be able to predict when she hears a noise from the other room. Now, you need to keep this in mind as it's going to come into play, obviously, here in a little bit, but also next week during 52. We get a small fight in the alley as we cut back intermittently to Sue, who's managed to get a call off to Ralph as she's attacked. Ralph is desperate to get home, ignoring the burns he'll get from Firehawk flying him there. Stretching as fast as he can in a desperate search for Sue, he comes across her burnt corpse next to his present that had fallen open in the struggle, revealing a positive pregnancy test. We stop briefly on Tim and Jack Drake, who are important, before landing on Ray Palmer, the Adam, and his ex, Gene Loring, who is signing back his inventions that she got in the divorce. They're interrupted by the call about Sue as they go to help with the search, and what a search it is. Bruce has already been there, you know, made his search of the place, but Ollie leaves nothing to chance, bringing in a host of heroes to test everything in the house, but despite their combined efforts, they come up empty. At the funeral, the heroes show up in force to honor their own. For all that she gets a lower profile than some, she was an actual member of the League for a time, and not even Lois Lane had that. It's when Ralph gets up to speak that we get one of my favorite visuals of the series, is the broken man can't hold his shape no matter how hard he tries. Rags' work with the character expressions is absolutely off the charts during this run, and it really adds to the weight of the emotional notes. The heroes then split off into groups to track down the suspects when we see a handful break off and meet Ralph in an alcove of the church. They're confident they know who's behind it as a new focused and enraged Ralph demands Dr. Light's head. Ray makes a quick stop to arm Jean so she can defend herself just in case as he joins Hawkman, Zatanna, Black Canary, Ollie, and Ralph as they prepare to go on the hunt. They're stopped before they start, their little get-together having been uncovered by The Flash and Green Lantern. It's the Wally West and Kyle Rayner versions, if you're keeping score at home. Wally's been around a long time at this point and knows there's something up, and after he threatens to go get Clark and Bruce, they give him the thinking behind their reasoning. Years ago, when these guys made up the league alongside Clark and Bruce, they were in a battle on Earth when Dr. Light managed to get to the Watchtower, where he found Sue. 
She had just wanted to come up there to enjoy the view, but instead she ended up undergoing the most traumatic moment of her life. She activates her alarm signal, but is blighted by a pulse of his light and helpless as he rapes her. The league arrives and they just pummel him, but he still sees himself as the winner. He'll get her again, and hey, that's a wedding ring on Flash's hand, he'll get her too. He's going to take them all. Zatanna prepares to wipe his memory, but they hesitate long enough to talk themselves into doing more, attempting to clean him up some. Now this is a glorious retcon, at least as far as this explains why Dr. Light went from challenging the League to not being much more than a Scooby-Doo villain against the Titan. Z messed him up. We switch to a different orbiting station, once used by the Injustice game, that has since been repurposed as a meeting place for the supervillain community. It's a gathering that runs the gamut from the efficiency of Deathstroke all the way down to the washed up Captain Boomerang. The hobnobbing is interrupted by a desperate like seeking any help he can get. As the heroes make their move on Light's safe house, they run into the wall that is Deathstroke, who's answered the call for aid. While at the headquarters of DC's first heroes, the Justice Society, Dr. Midnight is performing the autopsy on Sue when he discovers she was burned after death to hide the evidence. They're after the Laurel Man. It wasn't Dr. Light. Slade Wilson shows just why he's so feared in this world as he outmaneuvers our heroes, walking right over them until he makes his final move, getting into a battle of wills with Kyle as he tries to control the ring. This is his undoing as the League seizes the lull in fighting to dogpile onto Slade, the sight of which triggers Light's memory of the battle with them and Batman as he remembers what they did and lashes out with his powers, downing them all as the villains escape. They come to face with a suspicious Superman who gets deflected by Wally lying to cover for them. But West demands answers from Green Arrow as he admits that yes, this was different than hiding their identities and it wasn't a decision they reached lightly. They retcon this as the source of the rivalry between Hawkman and Arrow that had been in play for years. We check in again with the families, first seeing Boomerang terrified of finally meeting his son while dealing with the reality that his time may be gone before some moments with the Drakes, followed by Perry White and Jimmy Olsen. All of them worried about the killer when we see a blindfolded Jean Laurent kicking while she's home from her front door. The Atom comes in, having traveled via the phone lines as he tried to avoid the repeat of history. He goes subatomic and enters the rope where we get no less than 16 panels, showing a strand of rope as he eventually breaks it. I bring this up because, I mean, it is such an odd choice, but it completely works here. Tragedy avoided and the alarm systems again showing no disturbances, they call in Superman himself to examine the scene. In true fashion, he makes a discovery only he can, as he recognizes the not used. It's a common Boy Scout knot, after all. Both loving and hating the man at the same time, Ollie puts out the call, but again, they end up at a dead end. Still stalking his son, Digger gets it, gets it taken out of his hands as he can't even spy right anymore. The kid just comes up to him, and we see them begin to bond, as well as they discover that Owen is a speedster. Bruce is the main suspect by breaking it down to one basic question. Who benefits from these attacks as Lois gets a letter claiming that she's next? As they continue to catch nothing but smoke, we see the heroes grow more desperate while Jack Drake, who only recently learned Tim was Robin, struggles with the entire situation. He's probably more understanding of his son's heroics than I'd be with mine, but it's clearly a challenge for him. Finally agreeing and allowing Robin to fly, Jack finds a strange box with a note to him featuring the stylized R of Robin, containing a gun and a warning, protect yourself. This series is full of some emotionally powerful moments, but when I think of Identity Crisis, my mind immediately goes to this sequence and how Morales just absolutely nails the humanity of the characters. 
Jack uses a communicator to get in touch with Oracle as someone lands on the roof. We get a desperate back and forth as Bruce and Tim race to stop the tragedy about to be take place as Boomerang kicks in the door, getting blasted by Drake in the chest, but managing to take him with him with a quick boomerang as they both bleed out. Arriving home, Tim makes a mad dash, casting off his costume only to find himself too late as history has again repeated itself as a member of the Bat family has been orphaned. The culprit dead, we see the heroes begin to pick up the pieces with their families. Jane and Ray have decided to try again, and as we join Ollie being faced with one last question from Wally. The flash from light where we saw them gain up on him was witnessed by everybody there. Why didn't he mention Bruce was there when he told the story in his version? Because Lights wasn't the only mind they altered that night. Because it had been Sue, Bruce had come back to check on her and found them in the midst of lobotomizing light. Outraged, he tried to stop them, and feeling they had no other choice, they had erased his memories too. But as we learned with Light, it's not foolproof, and this ends up becoming the basis of for why Bruce constantly plans for taking down his friends. At least subconsciously, he knows he couldn't trust them. He doesn't trust anything, like, for example, the fact that Captain Boomerang was behind everything. He doesn't benefit. Dr. Midnight finally determines the cause of death as a blood blockage in the brain that, on closer look, is shaped like two footprints. Somebody was inside her brain. They scramble to find Ray, who's happily getting into bed with Jean when she asks about the note to Jack, which Batman had kept hidden. It starts to fall into place. Amidst the stuff she got in the divorce was all of his shrinking tech, which she used to try to knock Sue out, to stir things up in an attempt to get Ray back. Which, I mean, she did. The killing was an unfortunate accident, not really her fault. But then she did, so she had to act to avoid jail. Hence, she burnt the body. All of this turmoil and strife, just because she missed him. Ray is absolutely horrified, so he makes the only choice he can and has her committed to Arkham Asylum, before abandoning the world, going microscopic to live in that other realm. Now we get our true ending, as we see our heroes with those closest to them, closing on Ralph, carrying on a conversation with his dead wife. Figuratively, of course, as we close. Next week's 52 follows several of the narratives throughout its run, but the future of Ralph is one of the big ones. And now we're kind of set for it. You're ready to pick it up where it leads off from there. Now we're going to switch gears from the intimate personal story told in Identity Crisis and move on to the grand scale cross-dimensional tale in Infinite Crisis. We start out in the ruins of the Watchtower with the Trinity at each other's throats. Trust is thin at the moment, as in the lead-up, Max Lord, one-time liaison to the Justice League, had made his play, hijacking Batman's Brother Eye satellite, which we'll get to here in a bit. From there, Max used his mental abilities to take control of Superman and used him against his own allies, leading to Wonder Woman killing Max as cameras caught the whole thing on film. This not only violates their personal trust, as we know they frown on killing, but it also shakes the world's faith in them. Connor Kent watches this all from his home, still deeply questioning his place, giving Lex Luthor's impact on his life. All of this is being witnessed by some shadowy figures debating whether or not it's time to intervene. We continue to jump to scenes depicting just how dark the world's become, as Nightwing is witness to an army of Omax soar into the sky. The Omax are unwitting sleeper agents under the control of Brother Eye that, when called upon, shift into mechanical form capable of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with metahumans. In space, we see the escalating conflict between the people of Ron and Thangar as they lash out in response to the cosmic chaos as whole planets are being shifted or destroyed. 
On Earth, Shazam is cast from the skies as he's raving that the Spectre has killed the wizard from whom his power comes. If all of that wasn't enough, the Society of Supervillains is making their move, killing the Freedom Fighters as we see the Trinity separate, still on completely different tangents. Feeling that they're left with no choice, the Watchers shatter their way out of where they were hidden, and we get Superman and Lois Lane from Earth 2, Alexander Luther, and Superboy Prime. I'm not going to go super in-depth here about the, about the original Crisis, but these were the four heroes of the granddaddy of them all, the original, as I said, Crisis on Infinite Earths, at the end of which we were left with the current timeline status quo while they retreated to an artificial paradise to watch what they had won. Clearly, things hadn't gone quite the way they'd liked. Animal Man joins up with another cosmic assault force as we switch back to Earth where Power Girl is on the ropes at the hands of the society when the sun breaks through the clouds as Superman 2 comes to the rescue of his cousin. Before being folded into this continuity, she was the Earth 2 Supergirl who had been found and raised by Lois and Clark. There's a brief aside as we learn that there are two Luthers running around, one leading the syndicate and then, then apparently the core one who's on the run from his doppelganger. Back with PG, they arrive at the Fortress of Solitude where she meets our third Lex and Superboy. They fill in the blanks for her, painting a picture of the different timelines on through the crisis, ending with the reveal that her mom, Lois, is dying, and they're striving to save her. This rotten earth needs to go so that the proper one can take its place. Brother Eye is launching a full-scale assault on the Amazons, where, pressed on all sides in a no-win situation, Diana orders them to retreat, magically hiding them from all, while Batman helplessly watches on when Superman 2 makes a plea for Bruce to join him. Bats almost seems to consider until he finds the flaw in Cal's logic, launching an ineffective attack, driving Superman 2 away. The two Luthers battle, which is easily won by the one who turns out to be Alexander, who had clearly been sneaking into our dimension longer than he'd been letting on. But was he alone? No, as it turns out, as Bruce manages to repair the Watchtower black box, where we see Superboy Prime trashes the place en route to kidnapping Jean Jeans, while simultaneously Power Girl stumbles on him along with the others attached to a cosmic tuning tower built from the remains of the Anti-Monitor. In the OG Crisis, the tuning forks were used to merge the Earths, whereas these towers are designed to separate them back, from which Alexander Luther will cherry-pick the different elements for the, his own desired world. We get a bit of villain monologuing as Alex fills in some blanks before Prime goes off for, me for a meeting he's been dying to have with Connell. In Smallville, the talking doesn't last long as the boys throw down, but Con just isn't on that level. You remember the destruction Prime caused last week? As impressive as that was, he's even more of a force here. We check in real quick with Booster Gold, who's on the hunt for the Beatles Scarab that just came into the possession of Jaime Reyes before returning to the thrashing of Khan. He's getting pummeled when he plays his trump card, his Titan's communicator, as a legion of his friends arrive to help. Despite the numbers, though, his power is just off the charts as he throws them around and eventually snapping, starts ripping off limbs and caving in heads. He's an unstoppable force of nature when the flashes enter the picture. Jay, Wally, and Bart Allen drag him into the speed force, Jay and Wally being forced away, and just as things are looking grim, the ghosts of the past come to his aid. Emerging from the speed force are those who passed into it as Johnny Quick, Bart's mentor Max Mercury and Barry Allen himself give Bart the assist he needs as Alex puts his plan into motion and begins dividing the Earth. 
We stopped quickly on a meeting of heroes in a church before hopping to the new Earth 2 that appeared overhead as Superman 2 and his Lois revel in their return home, leading us back to Booster Gold with Jaime in tow, attempting to enter the Batcave. For those of you unfamiliar with Booster, he's from the future and stole a bunch of high-tech stuff and came back to the 20th century to be a hero. He's generally looked down upon by his peers, but being from the future, he knows that their planned strike on the Brother Eye is doomed to fail. Without Jaime guiding them, they never manage to find it, leading to a dark day. Our Lex has claimed his son Connor and has him in a healing chamber as we jump back to Lois who collapses. Despite coming home, she is still dying and Cal lets out a shattered wail of loss as she passes, one that's heard by Clark on our Earth who heads towards its source. Wonder Woman is visited by an alternate self who guides her back to the true path just in time to intervene in the Battle of Krypton as Earth 2 blames Clark for Lois' death due to him at contaminating their Earth. They finally manage to break through the grief to the man inside but their charge towards Alexander is interrupted as the splitting is now focused on Superman who is the keystone to the DCU in all of its forms. Nightwing tries to set a rally at Titan's Tower, but everyone is occupied as more Earths spring into existence. Momentarily overwhelmed in the face of the task ahead, he's joined by the rejuvenated Connell as they launch their own strike on Alex's Tower. The return of an older Bart, now the Flash, is tempered by what he heralds as Prime returns, now wearing his solar collecting armor that moves his power even further off the charts. Batman's team in space achieve their objectives with Beetle disrupting Eyes Cloaking, revealing the giant satellite surrounded by legions of Omax. They manage to break into the station, attempting to bring it down from within as we transition back to Earth where Alex is treating reality like a toy as he searches for the bits and pieces that will fit his needs when he's interrupted by Dick and Connor who free up some backup as the battle gets fully underway. They have things in hand until Prime shows up, demanding that Alex remake Earth Prime. Connor hasn't forgotten their last meeting and surges at his dark counterpart with a vengeance as we see that Bruce was never going to try to wipe Eye's memory, but just distract it while Mr. Terrific, who happens to be invisible to electronics, gets the real job done bringing it down. It makes one last attempt to trap Bruce inside, bringing down its creator as well, when Hal Jordan swoops in to make the save. Khan and Prime are still throwing down, though Prime has the edge when Khan surges forward with the last of his strength, sending both of them smashing through the tower, sacrificing himself in the process while disrupting its power. The cosmic threat is at an end, but the society is still out there, and they pick now to burst open every supermax prison on the planet and launch an attack on Metropolis. Chaos reigns as we get one of those all-hands-on-deck superhero battles Jeff Johns loves to do. With the Superman in the lead, the heroes wade in. Prime is especially unhinged at this point as he decides to go flying right through Oa at the speed of light to trigger a new Big Bang. Those that can take off to head him off, but can barely slow him down until the supers drag him straight into the heart of the red sun that Krypton once orbited. There, as their powers drain from them, Prime manages to kill Cal, but Clark manages to put him down before succumbing himself, only to be rescued by the Lanterns. On Earth, Bruce gets Alexander, who had just nearly killed Nightwing, down and at gunpoint and is ready to pull the trigger when Diana, of all people, talks him down. She's begun her road to redemption and knows that there's always a better way, but it's run at a moot point as the structure collapses, burying Alex. Or so they're left to wonder, as we catch up to him on the run, already planning his next move when the Joker puts in an appearance and mutilates him as Arlex watches on. 
We then end with As We Began, with the Trinity now in a much different place. Diana is on a personal mission to find her true self, free of both her heritage and mantle, while Bruce and his boys are going to retrace the steps that led to him become Batman. Oh, and I almost skipped Clark, who, due to the exposure he received, is basically unpowered now. He'll slowly gain his strength back, but what this all adds up to is the DCU is going to jump forward one year in time to when they return to work, if you will. But what happened during that year, you might ask? That's what we're doing next week during the All Club episode when we look at 52. It chronicles the entire year without the Trinity, following several interweaving stories from a superstar lineup of creators. Each issue tells us what has happened in that given week. It was done in real time at release, and it worked a lot like the show 24. As I mentioned, this was my goal, so I'm really looking forward to getting to it. Now, as it's 52 issues, I may be releasing a bit late, but it will come, I promise. Now, after 52, we'll be transitioning to Marvel, and I need your help. Over on Twitter at Hey That's Comics, I'm currently running a poll with options as to what we might focus on for the next few weeks. Please, let your voice be heard and vote. For that matter, don't forget to let your voice also be heard by, hey, leaving me a review wherever you happen to be listening to me. Thank you guys for hanging out, and remember, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. I'll see you next week.